You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, today we are taking another step forward in this set of sermons through uh, the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, today we have finally made it to Genesis chapter 2. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and you read it, if you just go back and picture the first time you read Genesis chapter 1, then right after that, Genesis chapter 2, it begs the question, what is Genesis chapter 2? What are we reading when we read this chapter of the scriptures? And to answer that, um, I, I first just want to set Genesis 1 beside Genesis chapter 2 just so we can look at them uh, together. Both of these chapters give an account of God's creative work. And this has led some people to believe that there are two sort of contradictory accounts of God's creation uh, in the scriptures. But these two chapters, Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, uh, they don't contradict one another, they complement one another. So let's think about how they're interacting uh, together. When you read Genesis chapter 1, you are, uh, you could picture yourself in a blimp, right? You, you are looking down from a blimp of the universal sort of creative work of God. You're seeing everything that God has uh, created. That's Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you're seeing the whole of God's creative work. But then when you read Genesis chapter 2, it's like you have come down out of the blimp and now you are on the ground. You're in a garden in the east of Eden and now you're watching a particular part of God's creative work. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, everything that God does is sequential, right? So on day 1, God does this. On day 2, God does that. On day 3, God does this. Uh, everything is sequential, but that's not the way Genesis 2 is laid out. Uh, Genesis 2 is, is God's creative work in a topical or thematic sort of a presentation. That's what you're finding in Genesis 2. It focuses on the creation of people and the place that God has prepared for people. That's what Genesis 2 is all about. You're in a garden, this place that God has prepared for his people. Now, notice how Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 begins. Do you see the phrase there that starts verse 4? These are the generations. Now, if you picture Genesis as a book, Right? A book has like a prologue or an introduction, and then uh, books have chapters. So if you picture Genesis as a book, it's got a prologue, an introduction. That's Genesis chapter 1. And, and then Genesis as a book has these 10 chapters that make up uh, Genesis, the, the book. And, and each of these chapters are marked out by that particular phrase. These are the generations. Every time you're reading through the book of Genesis and you come across one of those phrases, these are the generations, you know I have just flipped the page to a new chapter in the book of Genesis. So for instance, we get our first one right here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. The next one we get at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5, Genesis 5 verse 1. So here's what that means. Genesis 2, 4 to the end of chapter 4 in Genesis, that is one chapter, it's one section in the book of Genesis. So one commentator is right when he says, practically everything written in chapter 2 paves the way for chapter 3. Uh, Genesis 2, 3, and 4 are meant to be read together. It's one chapter inside of this book called Genesis. So with that in mind, let's start in verse 4. Let me just make a few comments about uh, kind of the text as we roll through it here in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, when you get to, to verse 4, 
and you loop verses four, five, and six together, in a lot of ways, what is happening in these three verses is a resetting of the stage. So think about how Genesis 1 starts. It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uh, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? You have a place that was created, but that place was not yet prepared. That's what we find in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And in a lot of ways, these three verses, Genesis chapter 2, 4, 5, and 6, that's the point that they're making. There is a place prepared, but are created, but that place is not prepared for people yet. So there's things that God needs to do to prepare this place for his, his people. And then you move forward to, to verse 7. Genesis 2 skips forward in verse 7 to what is day 6 in Genesis 1, uh, the creation of man. So in verse 7 we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In Genesis 1, you just get the fact of God creating man. Uh, God creates man in his own image, in his likeness. That's what you get in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, you get a view of God's creative work. God sticks his hands in the dirt. He forms and fashions the dirt into a human being. And then in just this very personal and intimate moment, breathes life into man. It's dust to divine likeness. That's what we're reading here. So in verse 7, God makes people, and then in verse 8, God prepares a place for the people that he has made. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And the text goes on to describe the garden. It's amazing, isn't it? It has everything that you need in life. It's beautiful. It's full of food. It's got these precious stones in it. It's got these flowing rivers. This is a place where God's people could flourish forever. That's what we're being presented with. God has prepared this sort of a place where a person just like you, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, they could thrive and flourish forever. And then the text joins the people and the place. You get that in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, again, let's just sort of zoom out and look at Genesis 1 and 2 from a whole for a moment. Genesis 1 and 2 show us who we are. We are like God. We are made in the image of God. It's this amazing declaration that human beings are royalty. They are created in the image of God. As a human being, you have been made and created and stamped with worth and dignity and value that is unequaled in the rest of God's creation. That's what we're seeing in Genesis 1 and 2. But who we are also shows us what we were made for. Who we are gives us both dignity and direction, value and vocation. So Genesis 1 tells us, hey, here's what you're made for. In light of you being like God, made in the image of God, here's what your life is for. You are to fill the earth with other image bearers. You are to subdue the earth. You're to exercise dominion. You were made to rule for God, to represent God. Or as Genesis 2 says, to work it and to keep it. Now, the Hebrew words underneath that word, to work and then to keep, those two Hebrew words 
um, are also used in the Old Testament to describe the role of priest in the temple of God. So the, the tabernacle and the temple is the place God dwells, and the priest had a role and a function around that, and those same two words, to work and to keep, that those Hebrew words are used to describe what the priest would do in the temple. So if you view the garden, now just pull back a second and just think about the garden from, a, again, from a, a, the 30,000 foot view. If you think of the garden primarily as a place where things grow, uh, it's a place to, to, where agriculture is happening, all, all that sort of thing. If that's the primary way you think about the garden, then translating these words to work and to keep make the most sense. But if you view the garden uh, primarily as a place where God dwells, and I think this is how Genesis 1 and 2 present the garden. It's like the temple. It's like the tabernacle. This is the place where God is making a home with his people. And if you view the garden that way, I think the best way to translate those two Hebrew words under to work and to keep in your Bible is to worship and obey. Genesis 2 is showing us, again, this is what you were made for. You were made for God, to worship and obey God, to love and adore God, to follow the one that you were made for. This is what you were made to do, to worship and obey God. And now I want to draw your attention to the two verses where we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, today, thinking about these two verses, verses 16 and 17. The Lord is about to, to say his first words in Genesis 2 to, to the man. Starting in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis chapter 2, <clears throat> This zoomed-in account of creation, this is the first time God opens his mouth and says something to humanity. This is the first time he opens his mouth and says something to the man. And the first words, and just, I want you to notice this, that the first words that God speaks, the, the first time he says anything, the first time he speaks, what he says, his words come out in the form of a command. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God's saying, look around at this amazing place. I've loaded it with everything you need to flourish spiritually, physically, aesthetically. There are wonders here loaded into this garden that you're going to need forever to explore. It's amazing. So God's just saying, enjoy it. It's going to be great. Just eat yourself into oblivion. Go, go enjoy my good creation. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So just think about what we're seeing here. Within this garden full of yeses, God puts one big, huge no. Don't eat of that one tree. You can eat of the rest of the garden. Just go and enjoy and have your fill. Just enjoy life. But not that tree. Not this one. In a garden full of yeses, there is one big no. Now, what is that showing us? The, the fact that God's first words to man come out in a command. Enjoy all of these things, but not. But what is that showing us about how we relate to God, how, how God relates to us? Well, maybe we could say it this way. 
The opening words of God in the scriptures are showing humanity. You, me, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they're showing the whole lot of us that we belong to God. That's what we're learning in Genesis chapter two when God opens his mouth for the first time and says something to us, that we belong to God. The scriptures don't just answer the question, who are you? The scriptures also answer the question, whose are you? And the answer to that question is we belong to God. Now remember, the opening chapters of any story set the stage for the story. They give you an interpretive grid so that you can understand rightly the rest of the story, everything that comes after it. And in this way, Genesis 2 is setting the stage of the story for us. It's showing us that God is the good king. And as the good king, he owns everything, everything, including us, that, that we belong to God. By making the universe, God owns the universe. By making you and I, he owns us. God is the king, the good king. He made everything. He knows how everything in his creation works. And then he sets rules. He gives commands that, that align with how he's made the world to work. This is the God that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We belong to God. This is the way the scriptures see the world. I, I just can't emphasize that enough. This is the way the Bible sees everything. Everything belongs to God. We belong to God. This is Psalm 100 verse 3 where the psalmist says, Know that the, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, look at that phrase again. It is he who made us, and because God has made us, we are his. That means that we are not autonomous. We are not self-governing. As human beings, we don't set the rules for our life. No, we are under God's authority. Now, what is authority? Authority is someone who is authorized to set the rules. That's what authority is. And the opening pages of the scriptures are showing us, in his first words to us, God is showing us that he is the one who has authority. He is the one who has the right to set the rules. Because God created us, God has the right to command us. That's what God's first words to mankind are showing man. We are not autonomous. We are under God's rule. We belong to God. This is why the New City Catechism, uh, which I would just commend, if you've got kids in your home, and even if you don't, even if you're just a person who wants to grow in good theology, you should grab the New City Catechism. It's just a really good teaching tool. It just gives questions and answers that teach theology. And the first uh, question that the New City Catechism asks pulls from an older catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism of a few centuries ago. And here's the first question in the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope? Hey, answer, that we are not our own, but belong to God. We are not our own. This is what the scriptures are teaching us. First words of God. 
we belong to God. He sets the rules, we follow the rules. And again, this theme just runs throughout the Bible. It's the way the Bible sees life. Your life, it's the way the Bible sees the world. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is uh, telling the church in Corinth, he's saying you need to flee from sexual immorality. And, uh, and if you read that passage, it's interesting to see what Paul grounds that in. Uh, Paul doesn't give a list of 15 reasons why to flee sexual immorality. He doesn't give a, um, some data points on it's going to be destructive in this area. This is why pornography is not good. This is why sex should be in the confines of marriage. He doesn't give all the data and all. That's not his take on it. He cuts through all those superficial things, and he gets down to the core of the issue. And he says, this is why you should flee from sexual immorality, because God has spoken, and you belong to him. That's why. He sets the rules. We follow the rules. We are not autonomous. We are under God's authority. We belong to God. Now, let's just pause for a moment and ask the question. Is this the way you see your life? I want to ask you to think about how you think about life, how you see your life. Is this the way you see it? I belong to God. I'm not my own. I belong to God. Is that the way you see life? Because this is the way God sees your life. This is the way the scriptures see your life. In these opening chapters of Genesis, we are given a world view, a way of seeing and understanding and interpreting the world we inhabit. And what we learn is we belong to God. But our culture has a competing view of the world. When the world answers the question, whose are we? It has a different answer to it. When the word answers it, God's word, he says, you belong to me. But that's not what our culture says. When our culture answers the question, who do I belong to? Who am I? Whose am I? Our culture responds by saying this, we belong to ourselves. That's what the world around us is saying. We belong to ourselves. Sort of the prevailing ethic of our culture is autonomy. Our autonomy trumps all. We live in the age of autonomy. We live in the age where everyone believes my rights like what I deserve, what I demand, what I think, my, my rights, they, it rules everything. That's the, the sort of prevailing ethic of our world. If it feels right, it must be right. We belong to ourselves. And when we belong to ourselves, we begin to write our own script. When we belong to ourselves, we begin to set our own rules. It's like in the book of Judges when the scriptures tell us that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. That is the prevailing ethic of our day. Autonomy trumps all. No one will set limits on my life. No one will restrict my my life. What I desire, I demand. Sociologists have a phrase to describe kind of the prevailing ethic of our culture. And here's the, the phrase that sociologists use. It's called expressive individualism. You can see it in slogans. And these slogans are everywhere, and they're teaching. They're, they're, they're catechizing. They're, they're telling us whose we are. It's slogans like, you be you. 
right? Slogans like be true to yourself, slogans like follow your heart, slogans like find yourself. I mean, Burger King taught this to us for years, didn't they? Have it your, your own way, right? I mean, it's just, it's just teaching us, it's catechizing us, it's, it's, it's showing us whose we are. It's, it's the world saying, here's whose you are, you belong to you. Expressive individualism is a way of seeing the world that, that says these three things. Let me just tease out these three things. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's the highest good. There is nothing better in this life than those things right there. There's nothing more valuable. That that is the authority. The authority is my individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. I agree with Alan Noble. He wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own when he said this. The basic story we tell ourselves in the modern world is of self-discovery. That is the modern script and story. He goes on to say, our films, our novels, our TV shows repeatedly follow the story of a protagonist who longs to know who they truly are, to uncover their authentic self, to throw off the expectations of fathers, of teachers, and of the rest of society in order to follow their own path. And then he goes on to say, we might even say that self-discovery is our contemporary uh, hero's journey. This is the story that's being told in virtually every movie you watch. Just take like virtually any Disney movie. This is what's being sold. This is what's being preached. If, uh, take Elsa as a for instance. This is what she believes. And when she's belting out her famous song, this is what she's preaching. Let me give you a, a taste of that. She says, it's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. It's everywhere. I mean, this is the Kool-Aid and everybody's drinking it, right? This is pervasive. It's, it's the story our culture is teaching us. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's number one. Here's the second thing that makes up uh, expressive individualism. So if that's our highest good, the greatest sin is intolerance of another's freedom, of another's happiness, of another's self-definition, and of another's self-expression. That that is what is not tolerated in our world. This is the greatest sin. We cannot do this. We cannot impose any restrictions on anyone in any way. That's the greatest sin in our culture. In other words, when we are our own, we want the world to know we are our own, and then we want the world to celebrate us being our own with us. That's the prevailing ethic in our world. In a 2016 video, I remember watching this several years ago, it went viral uh, back a few years ago. Uh, There is a white guy. Uh, He is about 5'7". He's about 35 years old, and he is on a college campus up in the Northwest. And he's interviewing people just to see how far will this logic go. That this is the highest good and the greatest sin is intolerance of any kind to to people finding their own sort of authentic self, self-expression, all those good things. How far would the logic go? So he's on a college campus and he's talking to college students and he's asking them questions. And the first is around gender. He said, if I were to say I was a woman, what would you say? And they were, of course, all a thumbs up to, to that. 
And then he went on. He, he, from there, he said, uh, what if I said I was Chinese? What would you say? And one of the college students responded back and said, well, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say uh, good for you. Uh, yeah, be who you are. Uh, then he pressed it a little bit further. He said, how would you feel if I said I was seven years old and I wanted to enroll in a class with other first graders? So I'm not 35, I'm, I'm actually seven. And there was a little bit more hesitation in this one. Uh, and they, one of the college students said, well, I, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, it wouldn't really bother me that much. I, I wouldn't go out of my way and tell you that, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, he wants to be seven years old. Another college student said, if you feel seven at heart, then so be it. Good for you. And lastly, he took another step. He said, what if I told you um, I'm actually six feet, five inches tall? Uh, would you tell me that I was wrong? One of the college students answered back, no, I wouldn't tell you that you were wrong. No. Uh, another one said, um, I feel like it, it's not my place as another human to say someone uh, is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. Uh, another college student said, if you thoroughly debated me and explained why you felt you were 6'5", even though you're 5'7", if you just debated me and explained why it is that you think you're 6'5", I, I feel like I'd be really open to saying you're 6'5", you're Chinese, you're whatever. Like, this is the prevailing ethic, that the greatest sin is intolerance of any kind, any restrictions on our personal freedom or autonomy. The highest good, individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self-expression, the greatest sin is intolerance of another person's freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. And then here's the third thing that makes up uh, expressive individualism. And anything that restricts our freedom... Our happiness, our self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. This is the prevailing ethic. Again, this is the Kool-Aid that everybody's drinking, right? This is what's being served, and everybody's taking their sips of it. No, nothing, no one can or will restrict my freedom. A baby in the womb will not restrict my freedom. That the covenant I've made in marriage will not restrict my freedom. What God says about my sexuality will not restrict my freedom. No, anything that tries to restrict me, anything that tries to limit me must be reshaped. It's going to have to be deconstructed. It's going to have to be destroyed. Something's going to have to happen to it because I will not tolerate my uh, sort of life being restricted. Autonomy trumps all. There is no room for God's authority. That's the prevailing worldview of our culture. Now, where does that leave us? Well, this first command also contains a beautiful invitation. Here's the invitation we have given to us by God with his first words to us in Genesis chapter 2. It's an invitation to surrender. To surrender. Only one can win. It will either be God's authority or our autonomy. But only one can win. Autonomy demands that God's authority submit to our desires. But God's authority demands that our autonomy submits to his desires. And there is no middle ground. 
It's either autonomy or God's authority. Only one can win. We'll either slay God's authority for the sake of our autonomy, or we will slay our autonomy for the sake of God's authority. And this is the ironic, sad thing about humanity. What we think will surely kill us, the scriptures say will actually liberate us. And what the scriptures think, say will kill us, like our autonomy, we think will liberate us. We just have the whole picture so upside down. Think about Genesis 2 and 3 for a second. If our first parents would have surrendered, right? If they would have said no to their autonomy, if they would have trusted the heart of God, if they would have lived under his authority, if they would have worshiped and obeyed, if they would have done that, you know where they would be today? They would still be singing and dancing in the garden. That's where they would be, as liberated as a human being could ever be. That's, that would be their life right now, thousands and thousands of years later. Surrender, when we receive that invitation from the Lord, that surrender is not the death of joy. Surrender will not kill us. That surrender is the doorway to joy. It leads us down the path of joy. There is no joy in life, according to the scriptures, apart from surrender. The more we choose autonomy, the more we die. The more we come up and under God's authority, surrendering our autonomy, the more we live. So here is really the question of the morning. Where is your desire for autonomy at war with God's authority? That, that's the question. Where is your desire for autonomy at war with God's authority? Where is what you want, because that this way, where's what you want colliding with what God wants? But where is that happening? Wherever that is, and there's not a one of us in this room or watching there online, there's not any of us who don't have some place where these two things are colliding. And wherever those two things collide, what I want and what God wants, whenever these two things are at war, colliding and, and butting into one another, that is the very place where surrender counts for you right now. That is where God is offering you the invitation to surrender your autonomy and to come up under his authority. That, that is the place of surrender. And listen, this is normative Christianity. Normative Christianity is surrender. I, I want this, God wants that, so I go with God. That is normative Christianity. When, when Jesus is, in a lot of ways, um, filling in the gaps of what does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to, to come and follow him? When he's filling in the gaps, this is how he fills it in in Luke 9, 23. He says, uh, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is normative Christianity. And when Jesus says, deny yourself, here's what he means. He means you're going to have to make this a consistent way of living. You're going, to, you're going to find yourself consistently siding with Jesus against yourself. That, that's going to be your normative experience as a Christian. Siding with Jesus against you. 
So you're going to wake up every day and there's going to be competing desires. There's going to be desires in your heart that run contrary to the desires of Jesus for your life. And when that moment happens, what do we do? It's either autonomy will trump God's authority or God's authority will trump our autonomy. And the only way God's authority wins is with surrender. When we deny self, when we side with Jesus against what we want. And again, this is, this is just what it, what it means to be a Christian. It's normative Christianity. I'll even press this a step further. If you aren't consistently feeling the pain of doing this, of siding with Jesus against yourself, if you don't normally experience that, there's not areas in your life you could look at in the last week, two weeks, three weeks, month where, where this is happening, it likely means you're not a follower of Jesus. This is just normal, like walking with the Lord is, I'm just confronting all the time. I want that. Jesus wants this. I am killing this and saying yes to him. Surrender. I love how one pastor put it. He said, the faithful Christian life looks like thousands of little, sometimes big, thousands of little deaths to self every day, thousands of denials of our desires, some of the desires that God will demand we say no to will feel closer and truer than our own skin, he says. But Christianity requires you to deny yourself, to deny your body, and deny the desires that may mean the world to you. That's normative Christianity. And I, I want to acknowledge that just because surrender is normative in the Christian life, it doesn't make it easy. If you think that's easy, I mean, I'd love to chat with you about how that's so easy. I mean, these things are hard, aren't they? That surrender is not easy for any of us. Uh, the stories of surrender within our church family are, are just amazing to me to watch and to see play out. They're just, they're, they're really uh, inspiring they're, they're amazing. I'll just give you some examples of this. For some right now in our church family, surrendering to God's authority in their life right now is requiring them to tolerate a lot of loneliness. For others uh, that are surrendering right now, uh, here, here's the sort of particular place of that surrender. It's in their marriage. And it is, it is creating a moment where they are staying in something that is so hard that they wake up every day and it is a fight to stay in that rather than to leave. For those in our church family who experience same-sex attraction, unless God changes their desires, here's what they're signing up for. Here's what surrender looks like to them. It looks like them surrendering their desire for marriage for the rest of their life. Surrender. It's hard. Just because it's normative does not mean it's hard. For others, surrendering has meant allowing their lives to be infringed upon, staying in a job they don't enjoy, giving up comforts that they really love, letting go of honorable dreams that they would love to pursue but can't because God's desires are this way, not that way. For, for some, it just looked like being so much more generous with what God's entrusted to them than they ever thought they would be. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. These areas have been hard for so many in the room. Just because it's normative does not mean it's easy. But this is the invitation of Jesus. 
to surrender. To surrender our autonomy and put ourselves under his authority. And you know what keeps us from surrendering? What makes it so hard for us to do this? If I could sum it up in, in one word, here would be the word, fear, fear. If I surrender in this area that means so much to me, means the world to me, these desires, this way of seeing, this way of living, if I surrender this, can I trust God? Can I trust that that won't kill me if I surrender that? Can I trust that liberation is on the other side if I surrender that? Can I trust that, that God is telling me what's best for me? Fear. This is what's underneath so many of our wrestlings with this idea of surrender. And I, I want to look at you today. And I just want to remind you, wherever that place is right now in your life, where, where it counts, where surrender actually matters today, I want to look at you and just remind you that you can trust God in that area. As painful as it may be, as scary as it may be, you can trust God. And here's why you can trust God. It's because God isn't just our creator. He is our crucified creator. God the Son came down from heaven to earth and lived in our place. In every place we refuse to surrender choosing autonomy over God's authority, Jesus perfectly surrendered. Do you remember that moment in the garden when Jesus cried out to God the Father, please let this cup pass from me? He's just seeing what's, what's coming. He knows his death on a cross is coming. He's like, God, is there, God the Father, is there any other way for this to go? And do you remember what Jesus says? But it's not my will, but yours be done. Surrender. He perfectly surrendered. And Jesus, God the Son, then died in our place, taking all of our sin upon himself. And then on that Easter morning, a few thousand years ago, he busted out of the grave on the third day as a foretaste of what's coming for all of those who surrender to him. So I know it's scary. I know surrender is not easy. But you can trust your life to the one who gave his life to you. You can trust God in that area where it really matters right now. God can be trusted. So will you just go ahead and bow your head there where you are? And I want to give you a moment to deal with the Lord. Where does surrender matter for you today? In what area of your life? Where do you find that your desires are pointing you one direction, God's desires are pointing in another, and you just find these two things colliding 
and you find yourself resisting and holding on and not relinquishing and not surrendering, wherever that is, the Lord is looking at you right now and saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's scary. But you can surrender. Surrender. Maybe it's a huge area for you this morning. Maybe it's just one of those small daily deaths that Christians die. But wherever that is, just in the best way you know how, talk to God about that. Offer that to him. Tell him today you are siding with him against yourself. Surrender. And some of us, this morning is the moment for you where that first huge initial surrender happens when you turn from your sin all the ways you want to live and you come to God for the first time. This is what the Bible calls faith or believing in Jesus. And Jesus this morning stands so ready to rescue you, to redeem you, to save you, to make you one of his own. Stand so ready for that today. So just, again, there where you are, you can call out to God, God, here is my life. Save me, rescue me. And God, would you do that rescuing work right now? God, would you put hearts in this room, hearts right there for those watching online, that are willing to surrender. Oh God, would you do it? And it's in your name that we ask it. Amen.